You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK principal. David, I trust you are well. I am well, uh, Giles. I trust all our listeners are well and looking forward to next week's exciting Smart Energy Conference. And today we've uh, got a great guest uh, on to talk about what's the the biggest sector in Australia or rapidly becoming so, and that's the uh, behind the meter market. Well, there's that absolutely, and probably a little bit of a front of the meter market. I mean, we talk a lot about technology, wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles, but the things that make them all tick is basically inverters. And we don't talk enough about inverters because without them, um, all that other equipment will be there sitting there just looking at us with a blank look on their faces, um, doing not very much. So we've, and a lot has happening in the inverter market over the last year. We've seen some fascinating developments. And that's why we've brought on James Sturch. James is the technical director um, outside the US and Europe for SolarEdge, which just happens to be now the biggest um, inverter company in the world. James, thank you very much for joining the podcast. You're very welcome. Very lovely to be here. Yes. Well, look, it is um, time we talked about inverters. There's an awful lot happening. I'm not really too sure where to start. But um, let's just try and start now with some of the new standards which are being introduced this year. Now, we've already seen some have been introduced in South Australia. There's kind of the whole thing's been fast track, new communications, new inverter settings that require, give ability for them to be sort of switched off and, and orchestrated, if you like. But across the country or across the main grid, a new inverter standard is coming into effect at the end of this year. Tell us as succinctly as you can, what this is and why this is important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head early in your introduction, really, when you describe the the requirement of the inverter. It is the, the central piece of equipment that without it, nothing is going to do anything, whether it's a battery or a rooftop PV system. So it really is the, the centre point. And what is happening now in this year of quite a lot of dramatic reform and changes of of the standards, it's really a case of making them do more, making them interact with the grid more intelligently, but also making them become much more a part of people's everyday homes and being able to integrate more with their um, the rest of their appliances and also with the, 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 the broader um, range of other systems and really just trying to get much more out of it. So firstly, what's happening is we've got the introduction or the mandatory um, implementation of the new inverter standards as 477.2, that's the 2020 version, which comes into effect in December, on the 18th of December. That's quite um, quite a big change for the inverters because what it's now doing is, is specifying a lot more in terms of the way in which the inverters interact with the grid. There were requirements and settings and technical sort of components, if you like, of the inverters in the previous version of the standard, but these have been embellished a lot more. So some of the functions which previously were non, um, non-obligatory, non they were sort of optional, are now uh, a must. And there's also 
sort of an embellishment, if you like, of what was implemented in South Australia last year that you mentioned. So the low voltage ride through. So this is a requirement that's in the standard so that if there is any small disturbance on the on the network that has the potential for inverters to disconnect to prevent what you call like a cascade scenario where a small disturbance can create a very big outcome where every single inverter would systematically trip and turn off. There's elements in the standard now to prevent that kind of um, effect. There's also um, other elements in the standard as well about how they communicate with the internet and how they can be remotely communicated to. There's stuff in there as well about compliance. The settings need to be able to be viewed by inspectors. And there's also elements of it to protect, to ensure that if a product has export control, that if for any reason it loses connection or communication with the meter, the systems go into a much more of a safe mode and turn themselves off. So there's a lot of protection for the networks as well. It's, it sounds like there's a lot that um, you've been asked to do or of inverters that haven't been asked before. How difficult has that been for the industry? Um, is it easier for some players than other players? And I guess the question is, I mean, is it just simply unlocking all these abilities that people just haven't bothered using before? Or is it more about diving deeper into the technology to go, oh, look, guess what? We can actually do this with this. Well, the biggest challenge to start with, to be honest, was actually understanding the requirements. Because one, <laughs> one, one of the, the, the beautiful things that happened with this standard was they completely restructured it. So it wasn't just a case of updating a particular clause. The entire clause structures changed. So bits which were in one section are now in a different section and it's all the numberings changed. So it took a, you know, a good couple of months just to be able to do what's known as the gap analysis to work out why, what is it they're now asking us to do? What is it these products now need to have? And also there's a little bit of a challenge, the fact that the standard was published on the 17th of December 2020, which really meant that most manufacturers didn't really give it a huge amount of attention until um, you know end of January, beginning of February this year, which lost everyone a bit of time in terms of really getting prepared for the changes. There's a little bit in the standard to do with hardware, but the vast majority is really software orientated. So yeah, I think you're right. For a lot of manufacturers, it's a case of unlocking a lot of what was already in there and also enhancing some of the requirements they had to develop to be able to meet the, the need of, of the South Australian rules, especially around the voltage disturbance stuff. Um, but one of the biggest challenges, to be honest, is just the timeline. It's just having to retest and recertify every single product book bench time and everything else within these labs and and get through that whole rigmarole of relisting every single product um with the clean energy council it's a it's a bit of a challenge james i i, I whenever i talk about inverters or I, I get very very excited so uh uh because for me oh the whole the whole, <laughs> the whole grid is moving away from uh inertia your physical inertia towards an inverter driven grid in my opinion and the control systems around it and what i see is that uh everyone wants to own uh, or be able to drive the inverter in someone's house uh, and probably at a bigger scale as well uh, and so you know solar edge has got what i think it calls its energy hub and is developing its battery and sort of home control system uh, Enphase is developing one of those. We also see aggregators in the Australian market that we've had on the podcast before, like uh, Switched In and uh, perhaps Solar Analytics. And I'm sure there are other, uh, 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 other firms that are sort of, uh, uh, including sponsors probably of this podcast, that all want to own the inverter in, in, in the house and, and be able to control it. Uh, I guess, do you just want to talk a little bit about how SolarEdge sees 
that developing. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it, it really comes down to that element of it's not what you got, it's what you do with it. And the realisation is there's an awful lot more that you can do with an inverter, especially when it's connected to batteries and or other smart home devices, such as um, being able to control hot water systems, turn off other loads, turn on water pumps, control air conditioning systems, or even charge your EV. And all this can be done through an inverter or through an associated um, controller or you know smart home device and that is where the beauty of these systems now is really going to pay dividends in terms of being able to manage network requirements and be able to manage and balance the energy system because they can do much more dynamic levels of control um, than you could really hope to achieve for even just as, as short as a, a few years ago. Now from SolarEdge's perspective a lot of that functionality, a lot of those products that I described, plus a whole range of others we already have and we have already been utilising in this country for, for years to benefit um, system owners to really maximise their own um, uh, production from their PV systems. But now what's happening is you say, yeah, there's, there's all this additional opportunity for aggregators, whether it's under a VPP or even directly controlled through the requirements of network to be able to dynamically control systems, whether it's to manage export or to manage loads loads directly, to be able to actually um, support the grid by, in those times where they've got very high production and not enough load, you can literally turn loads on. One of the biggest challenges for the industry overall is really just the very simple process of creating a common language. Because for all of this to work, everything, if you like, has got to be singing from the same song sheet. All these products out there ideally need to be able to talk in the same way to a network, albeit via an aggregator or, or an agent, depending on, on the structure. But they're all going to be doing it in the same way. They're all going to be doing it in consistent, managed way. And one thing that's going into the 4777 standard is actually the basic requirement for metering accuracy, which was never there before. So you know, if you think of starting, if all of this is centered around that very, very simple question of what's going through the network? You know, what is going through that grid connection point? What is being metered? Well, to start with, you've got to have the meters that are the same level of accuracy or within the same class. You then got to make sure that they're metering it in the, in the same physical point. So we know we're actually measuring the, the grid connection point. And then you've got to build up from there, go, right, now how are we going to make sense of that information? What language are we going to use? How are we going to start creating consistent APIs so everything can talk in the same way, the same timestamps, the same way to scrutinize that data to make sure it's accurate. Now, a lot of this conversation at the moment is centering around existing platforms. So obviously there's the California Rule 21, which did this a few years ago. Um, a lot of lessons were learned from that. Currently, there's a lot of conversation in this country around implementation of IEEE 2030.5, which is a communication um, well, the easiest way to describe it is it's like a almost like an operating system for an API and a server to be able to communicate, gather, record, scrutinize data in an even and consistent way. Now, again, from from SolarEdge's perspective, we're already fully um, compliant and operating within the US and California Rule 21 is, is something we dealt with years ago. And it's just a case really of us helping to create that landscape so what we're doing is very proactively assisting 
a whole load of different work streams in the country with oh, regulators and, and networks and even government, state government uh, entities to try to help create the correct playing field of communications, communications protocols to ensure that what gets rolled out and implemented is fit for purpose from day one. Because what no one wants to do is roll out some kind of, you know, platform to manage dynamic exports and then realize that, nah, we could have done it better or, you know, it's not quite working. You know, you, yeah, you, so, you're going to so, get one shot at this and it's got to be right from, from the get-go. And, and and it sounds like that's uh, still not uh, set in stone, but there is an uh, API and application programming interface as, that will essentially be an open standard that... Uh, whether you're uh, a vertical integrator such as yourself or, or uh, an external aggregator, um, uh, we'll all be able to uh, talk through that API. And uh, um, I, I, I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit to there's a lot of things. I mean, SolarEdge bought Cocam Battery Factory, and I think you're building a new battery. SolarEdge is building a new global battery factory and plans to introduce a residential battery along with everyone else. Um, uh, but I, I wanted to ask about, in, we've got this extra inverter functionality, but what's actually happening to the uh, prices of inverters? And, you know, if, if do all the, I mean, the market divides between those that are very price conscious and those that like to have functionality. Can you talk a little bit about the trends just, just, just briefly? Yeah, generally the, the trends, um, as I'm experiencing it and, and through SolarEdge is really, Prices seem to be, reason well, what I can talk about more with our products is price is generally staying quite level, it's plateauing, but functionality is increasing. So you're getting more out of the product. And also what else is, is happening is they're getting easier to install, quicker to install. So although the product price itself is generally pretty consistent, installation price should be coming down and other factors to support installers and to be able to get more out of the system for homeowners. So, you know, it, focusing in on the inverter on its own as, as one particular component is probably a bit unfair. You've got to look at the overall picture of, of what's happening within the industry. But generally, yeah, the products are getting, you're getting a lot more out of it. You get more bang for your buck. Okay, and I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but we, you mentioned earlier on about what the inverter can do in controlling loads, and, and I presume that all the inverters are going to be able to uh, move power, active power, <laughs> see I've learnt that term, up and down um, and, uh, as required by the network, I guess. But we talked about this controlling loads and the controller. Is that part of a solar edge inverter or is that a separate device? Uh, um, uh, for instance, I saw Enphase, uh, I don't mention them just because I was reading their quarterly, uh, that you can have like four circuits, like your air conditioning or your pool pump, but, uh, but that's not really part of the inverter, is it? It's a sort of add-on component, or how does SolarEdge think about it? Yeah, look, it's always the case of trying to balance, again, price over function. So what most manufacturers do, and SolarEdge especially, is we allow or we enable very simple methods for installers and or homeowners to add components and functionality to the system. Because what you don't want to do is, is buy a product, have all this functionality that you paid for that means nothing to you, you don't want it. So what you can do is with, with all our systems, we can add on 
oh, you name it, we can add it on. We can add on hot water control systems based on diverting excess solar to be able to heat your water, but based on the actual amount of excess, it can manage it based on your temperature and you can set profiles. Like I said, we got we can do we can look after EVs. We can have a whole series of different other smart home controllers where we can talk to air conditioning systems. We can turn on other circuits, dry contacts. There's all these other. There's a whole suite of smart home devices and controllers which you can just add-ons. So, if someone today wanted just to buy a basic PV system, fine PV system with a solar edge inverter down the track they started wanting to add to it they can they can add the battery they can add ev they can add hot water pump controller they can add you know whatever it is they could just go on and on and on and build their entire smart home portfolio around the architecture of the solar edge system as opposed to buying a product now that has this functionality which meh, they might not necessarily want. So it, again, it's just trying to create that sort of sweet spot because I think really the truth is that a lot of that smart home requirement is still in its very early stages. I think a lot of consumers especially don't quite understand the benefit and, and what you can and can't do and, and almost why you would want to. Hmm. As we get more into EVs and broader adoption of EVs, I think people will get that message much quicker because obviously charging your EV needs to be scheduled and controlled and you need to have a little bit more visibility over when and how and how much. And, and it may be that they actually sort of start to see this as a battery on wheels and, and, and all that might entail. Um, you know, as we've been sort of talking about, sort of all this is happening behind the meter and distributed energy is going to be an increasingly important part of the grid, but it's not just about technology, it's also about the design of the market. Now, the Energy Security Board has rolled out its sort of draft proposals for the complete rewrite and reform of the market from post-2025. Um, you're involved quite heavily, obviously, in the consultation groups on the, um, well, I don't know whether you've been consulted, to us, you've been consulted, but at least you're observing. Um, what came out in the ESB report and are they heading in the right direction? Well, the initial reports which came out, um, what was it, just over a week ago now, was really, in my opinion, a pretty good accurate overview and review of, of the current situation, of, of what the market currently looks like, what the challenges are, and what really needs to be addressed or, or adopted or um, alleviated moving forward. And now what the ESB are moving straight into is the development and the work around the maturity plan, which is the real meaty bit of the work, which is really that plan of, okay, this is what it is right now, and this is what we expect is going to be the challenges over the next few years. But the maturity plan is, right, this is going to be the actual plan of what we need to have in terms of, of an industry, of a, of a network, of a way in which systems talk to each other and, and how we can move away from the status quo. So haven't they really given much idea about what they're actually thinking in terms of mechanisms and markets and incentives and designs and things like that? It's, um, it seems um, a bit late on to start to not have talked about that. Well, they kind of have and they haven't. In, in, again, in my opinion, they've, they've done a lot of work of looking at what is being going on and, and the challenges and the requirements of a lot of the various different elements of the industry. But they haven't really done that work yet of really looking at well, what's really working well and what isn't working well and, and also looking at 
the requirement, let's say, for South Australia, you know, how transferable would that be to Queensland or, you know, the work that's going on in mm. New South Wales? How does that relate to the work that's going on in Victoria? And looking at that overall plan of, well, you know, just, just because it's, it's a great policy in that part of the country, should we adopt that as a, as a roadmap for other parts of the country? So what it's done at the moment is it's done a quite a deep dive into a lot of those different elements and now what I'm, I'm hoping will come from the maturity plan is is that that sensible approach of okay the, the plan needs to be well that's worked there and won't necessarily work over here and you know really really making sense of it but look I don't envy the process because it really is throwing a crystal ball very far down the track if you look at where we sit now even what the industry looked like two years ago the overall industry I'm not just talking about the renewable industry but just the overall mix of energy and where it could be by 2025 let alone post 2025 you know it could be a completely different world entirely hmm. i've got two more questions but i'm going to let um the, the good final questions i think so david have you got any more uh no look i'm just conscious of uh, of time uh giles I'll, uh, there's a lot to talk about I, my comment about the esb approach in general as i said previously is it doesn't seem to have a, a sufficient vision maybe i'm just an old hippie that of, of what the end goal is you know like i mean we can't decarbonize electricity without getting rid of the coal generators you can't get rid of the coal generators unless you've got a, a control scheme for inertia and voltage and frequency manage and current in current in, in in place to replace that and yet there's no clear concept at all of what the control scheme is going to be after the coal generators are going to be gone away and, and, and how inverters, it has to be inverters, but how they're all going to work together and actually do the job. That's, that's, that's I think, my biggest beef with the whole thing. But it's and, not, and, that's, well, and that's pretty much my one of my last questions, actually, James. Sort of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> can the inverters deliver on this? I mean, you know, you go back five, ten years ago. No, they couldn't have done. You can't do that. You've got to have a coal generator to do this. You've got to have a hydro plant or a spinning gas turbine. But now we're learning that the inverters can actually do a lot of these functions. Well, they're going to have, the, going to, have the, to do all of them. Yeah, well, look, it's not the inverter. The inverter's the bit in the middle. It depends what's behind the inverter. And it depends what the inverter has got or what is being asked of it. And, and really, they can pretty much do now almost everything they're being asked to do as long as behind them, they've got the resource to be able to deliver it. So, yeah, if you're trying to create a crack energy from a PV system and it's one o'clock in the morning, funnily enough, the inverter's not going to do much. But if there's a, there's a beautiful, great big battery sitting there, yes, absolutely it can. And that is the, the real trick of all of this. It's... The focus on the inverter is it's just a tool i mean obviously a very sophisticated intelligent valuable tool beyond belief but it depends what the resource is behind it so a lot of this work has really got to be around creating that alternative source and resource of energy and and the pot to play with obviously at the moment there's a lot of focus on batteries um you know there's talk also about all these different methodologies around uh, hydrogen um you know there's all these other ways in which we, we can do it but yeah i personally believe that if there's enough other alternative ways to store energy yeah you wouldn't need to be generating it and creating spinning reserve that's currently in the mix hmm. 
what could possibly go wrong? What worries you most about the way we're moving forward? What, what keeps you awake at night? Because you sort of talked about all the potential and the possibilities and how we need to reshape the markets and things like that. But what really just sort of in and goes, oh, dear, um, I'm a bit worried about this. The thing that concerns me the most is that so much of this planning and all this very, really smart thinking about how we can get inverters and, and DR, so the, the small stuff behind the meter at a residential level to to do all these weird and wonderful, fantastic things when they all work together and everything else. The one thing that is almost the most quietest little mention is the consumer. And it is the person that's actually bought the damn thing. Yeah, them, you know, those people that actually bought it, that invested in it, them. And it's all contingent on, well, do they actually want to do this? Do they want to? Or are they gonna buy all this stuff, put on all these fantastic batteries and just disconnect from the grid <laughs> you know and, it, and it's that i think the the lack of real consumer engagement and considering whether or not they want to have their inverter dynamically exported or, or not or, or you know whatever it is i think that is one of the things that is for me anyway at the moment concerning because they are absolutely center in all of this and they're not really got enough of a voice i believe and they probably don't have enough information and that's why we're very glad that you've joined us on this podcast james because i think more discussions around this and probably we can go into a deep dive even further into exactly how those dynamic exports might work although that may also come down to the motives of the um people controlling those devices as well and uh, some of the rules and regulations but look james Dirch from solar edge um thank you very much for joining the energy insiders podcast you're very welcome it's been great to be here thanks james thank you and that was James Sturch, uh, Chief Technology or Chief Technician for Solar Edge outside of the US and uh, Europe. Um, look, fascinating discussion, David, and I think we need to sort of focus a little bit more on inverters because um, um, they're kind of um, important. Yeah, and inverters, and as James said, it's uh, not just the inverter, but I mean, the inverters, and it's the software, it's the system level uh driving of the inverters and the software to, that does that and it's also the the batteries in the first instance as the resource that we're going to have for these virtual synchronous machines you might remember we talked at the utility scale Stephen sproul uh podcast earlier in the year which i think uh, was a great explanation and uh you know we see in these off-grid applications like that uh, bhp uh, and alinta uh, and uh, fortescue are doing you know the over 100 megawatts essentially of inverter driven uh, systems largely uh, with virtual synchronous machines showing it can be done at that scale and just also on that uh, the work in Scotland I, I, I saw a report that showed that Scotland's uh, developing a wind farm the first in the world that will have a black start capability uh, again using a kind of virtual synchronous machine type of thing so we're seeing the progress on this is, is very quick but probably that's enough on technology let's get back to talking about politics or something that we can all write <laughs> oh, must, we, must we yeah i just wanted to add in um, some of the inverter stories we've had recently about the way they solve the solutions in the in western victoria and southwest new south wales and more recently in north queensland um with the system strength issues up there to the extent that um, North Queensland had been the area where the most um, curtailment for grid issues and congestion issues um, had occurred there. And then there was basically none in the last quarter, according to the AEMA report. So that just shows a bit of application um, 
can deliver a lot of things. But politics is never far away, David. And um, Keith Pitt, well, look, we've, there's a few things that have happened. Look, most notably, most recently, is um, Keith Pitt intervening in nixing a loan that was to have come from the North Australia Infrastructure Fund to NEON for its Caban Energy Hub, and particularly the first part of the um, wind farm. Look, I don't think it's the death of the project because it's got a contract with uh, Clean, Clean, sorry, Clean Co, which should mean that can land finance of some sort. But it's a pretty bad look when the um, resources minister intervenes and says, not because I think we can probably find a better thing, but because he just, just doesn't like the look of it. Well, I'm sure the words didn't say that exactly, but I mean, that, that was the very obvious implication. Look, I guess I sh I sh we, we shouldn't be surprised. I won't say any more about it, but anyone that thinks that Keith Pitt has the slightest amount of time for anything to do with wind or solar hasn't ever listened to a single word he's ever said. He, he, he you know, he's uh, what I might call the absolute classic uh, North Queensland uh, liberal person, liberal country party person that, that doesn't, couldn't care less about wind or solar and believes it's all bad stuff. And, mm -hmm. and you know, probably is only very reluctantly supporting gas. <laughs> anyway look um that was a bad look i'm more interested actually in your take uh, about the latest developments in the hunter valley well in new south wales i guess because this this new project isn't in hunter valley at all it's actually down south um energy australia sort of chipped in um it's going to build a 300 megawatt peaking plant at uh, right next to its talawara gas power station in um the south of sydney um, a couple of questions here, David. Should it have got federal funding, $80 million for adding a little bit of hydrogen um, capability, which is only going to happen two years after it starts? I think that's state funding, isn't it? Not federal to be... No, it is actually. You know, you're quite right, actually. It's mostly state funding. There's a little bit of federal funding in there. Um, I guess the New South Wales was keen to just have a few things that could um, spin and fire up um, when needed. I mean, it's probably only going to operate at a 2% capacity factor. And I think Energy Australia pretty much agreed with that assumption. So what do you think of that? And do you think that this leaves any space at all for Snowy Hydro's um, continuing plan to have their own peaking gas plant? Well, you know, the first thing, no one's ever going to believe that Snowy's things are done from a commercial uh, purposes. That's the unfortunate thing of it. It's become, since it's owned solely by the federal government, it's, it basically just looks like a tool of government policy. I'm sure the people within Snowy that I know and have a lot of respect for would resent me saying that, but that's simply the way it looks to an outsider. Energy Australia has clearly made a commercial decision. Uh, you know, if we work on a, a million dollars a megawatt, which is roughly the cost for open cycle, less probably at, at a, um, a, a brownfields plant because it's, only, it's already on the Talawara site, uh, then that would be 300 million. So the uh, 80 odd million that they're getting is, you know, uh, about a quarter of the cost. Uh, the operating cost, you know, the gas depends where the gas comes from, but that's likely to be, I always work off $8 a gigajoule as, as a number. Uh, that, that gives you an electricity price up around, uh, you know, to run the thing costs you $100 a megawatt hour. So, you know, a, a battery, just to put it in comparison, if it can buy, uh, electricity at anything less than $100, say 80 or $90 a megawatt hour, it can outcompete that gas plant in on the short term market if it wants to. Uh, but equally, if we want to see the battery running things all uh, for four hours every evening, then it has to recover its capital cost, the battery as well. And when you work that out, it comes to a spread 
you know, that it needs a margin over what it pays for its electricity of something like $100 a megawatt hour. So, you know, it'll have to be buying power at zero in the middle of the day. But with so much rooftop solar around, that becomes a real possibility. So, you know, from the New South Wales governments, we can ignore the hydrogen side of things. I think they said 200,000 tonnes, which, you know, you work it out. 200,000 kilos, actually. Yes. Kilos, excuse me. 200,000 tonnes would be worth talking about. 200,000 kilos, half a million dollars per year of hydrogen is, is not going to get anyone very excited. Uh, uh, but, you know, in the end, having that gas plant there, it's, it's not going to contribute that much to carbon emissions in the bigger scheme of things. It's not going to run very often. Uh, it probably doesn't make much difference overall. Yeah. A couple of other things happening around the place. Um, Sanjeev Gupta seems to have saved his steelworks, but um, he's put his... I, I um... wouldn't bet on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, he's got a funding deal in there, which may or may not save it. Um, he's also put his um, solar, the Coltana Solar Project, which is actually going to be the biggest in South Australia at the moment, plus the um, Playford battery up for sale or seeking a co-developer, presumably to put money into it. Um, that's interesting because these two projects actually have a contract with the South Australian government. And South Australian government's been having trouble with this. First of all, they signed a contract with the uh, Solar Tower Consortium Solar Reserve, and that didn't work. Um, and you were always very sceptical about that, and um, um, your scepticism was quite um, well justified. Um, now they're running into trouble again with this one, but um, probably not on technology reasons. This is more about sort of getting the developer to actually have the money to build the damn things. Yes, we've seen a, a complete drying up pretty much of uh, new wind and solar projects recently. I mean, that is new announcements. Uh, there's still an awful lot under construction, and that's because I think a couple of reasons, partly around policy and partly that the price isn't all that good. Uh, we've said several times on this podcast, and I think it's worth reiterating, that how can a new solar plant compete with rooftop solar, you know, the, which is just growing at 300 megawatts a month at the moment and is completely price insensitive? We talked about all this controlling load, but at the moment the householder doesn't see any of that. He doesn't want to respond to the market price. He doesn't even know what it is. He's paying, you know, like 28 cents or whatever it is for electricity he buys from the grid, and that's all he really cares about. Mm, that's right. Um, there has been a few announcements in terms of hydrogen. I think we've got three different hydrogen projects with 10 megawatt electrolyzers um, that have been supported by ARENA. I think there's one in South Australia, there's one in Victoria, if I'm right, and one in Western Australia, or maybe it's two in Western Australia. And Edify Energy have also popped up with their own 10 megawatt electrolyzer in North Queensland, part of a, a grand scale, but I guess it's sort of quite easy to throw away, oh, we're going to do a gigawatt of this and five gigawatts of that. But um, it's certainly interesting that it's starting to move forward at least and um, I suppose you've got to build a couple of 10 megawatt electrolyzers before you do anything bigger. Yes that's right and we'll be interesting to see. I, I believe that you know look there are two ways. To, the, the thing about hydrogen is that the uh, green hydrogen is that's what we're talking about that is hydrogen produced from wind and solar is that all depends on the capacity utilization. That's a huge driver of the cost and if you're at the moment on the Australian grid, where can you actually buy electricity that just comes from wind and solar? The only possibility is, is in Tasmania, right? So if you had a, had a electrolyzer in Tasmania, you could more or less put your hand on your heart and say that except for the imports from Victoria, uh, it's, it's coming from green hydrogen. Otherwise, it's got to be an off-grid uh, utilization. And that's why you need to whack a battery of stuff on uh, to keep the... Um, uh, the the the, the uh, hydrolyzer itself making hydrogen 
uh, when the wind and the solar isn't running. And that's a, that's a very big driver of cost. So there's a, we've got a long way to go down the track there uh, on the hydrogen side mm. of things, is what it I would say. Yeah, no, it was actually interesting. I should actually just mention a brief mention to AMP Energy, which is this Canadian investor, which came in and snapped up a couple of um, solar, undeveloped solar and battery projects in South Australia with a view to the hydrogen market. So that was an interesting play. They've already existed in Australia with a couple of smaller sort of solar projects, but um, they kind of got a big thing there. Look, before we wrap up, David, I just thought we'd just touch on electric vehicle policy. It looks like we're starting to move forward there. Um, Victoria has responded to criticism of its um, EV road tax by actually introducing what is effectively Australia's first um, direct car EV, electric car subsidy, $3,000 for up to 20,000 vehicles. Well, it's $3,000 for the first 4,000 and then they might actually trim it a bit afterwards, but we'll just see what happens there. And New South Wales, mind you, I should say that that's contingent on that EV road tax going through. And then New South Wales is starting to make noises as well, possibly um, by removing stamp duty and other things, which is pretty much the same impact actually and a lot of the other things that you've been pushing for on this podcast um, over the last couple of years so um, once again it's coming from the states uh, um, David. Yes I think there is a, a call for, to have a federal sort of approach to it and good luck with that uh, but but I mean it really would be a lot better look I think the Victorian policy suite put together is, is a silly way of doing it it can easily be seen as a subsidy for the people that can afford to buy expensive uh, um, uh, battery-powered cars at the moment, and they are expensive still. There is a price issue uh, because we don't price carbon properly. If we did that and looked at the whole-of-life costs, you, you might get a very different answer. The model choice is still extremely restricted because you can't buy things like VWs uh, or all the cars that people are selling. You know, like it's 10,000 a month of them going in in England and 10,000 a month going in Norway. But the New South Wales announcements by Andrew Constance, if they're actually turned into a policy, things like free parking, you know, being able to drive over in Sydney, the Harbour Bridge at peak hour uh, without paying if you're in an EV, free rego, those sort of things, uh, you know, don't cost the budget very much to start with. And they, but they provide an incentive for people to make their own choices in the market. We did see a federal, we have seen a call, uh, I can't remember who actually from, to have a, a nationally a, 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 a distance-based road charging and to get away from rego fees and all of those things. Now, I think that's basically accepting that country people drive further than city people, uh, and so it would be a disadvantage to country people, but basically you want to tax people based on how much they drive, how much of the road they're actually consuming, how much they're contributing to congestion, and, and a, a distance-based charge rather than a, a cost on just owning the vehicle is, is far superior and could treat, you know, everyone relatively equal in that space. Uh, and, and I think that would be a good system to move towards and we get away from what I think is a very, well, it is the world's worst policy in suite in Victoria. We'll just wrap it up there. And um, thank you very much for our guest once again, James Sturge. Thanks to David. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And we'll be back again next week, possibly from the Smart Energy Conference, but we'll see how that unfurls. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen. 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.